0: Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant
1: ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he
0: is, Tristan Almada. Every once in a while, I get to interview someone that blows my mind, and Jim Harder was that person For this week. Now, anyone who reads the news is always hearing about Gallup polls. They're constantly studying public opinion. And while their most prominent polls are in politics, they do a lot of research into the workplace. And Jim Harder is their chief scientist leading those studies. In fact, he's led over a thousand studies on workplace effectiveness. He's written four books about those projects. And the fourth one, That's the one we'll be talking about. It's called Wellbeing at Work just came out. Jim gave me a lot to think about. Here's our conversation. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts with Success. And today I've got Jim Harder. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tristan.
1: Good to be with you today.
0: Well, dude, I'm excited because I did a lot of research on you and I read your new book, well-being at work, how to build resilient and thriving teams. And I'm very, very impressed. I actually have a ton of questions for you because not only is this podcast focused on solopreneurs and entrepreneurs and just helping people in general grow businesses, but you know, I've got three businesses I run. And I, I was like, whoa, I I never thought of that. I I need to try this. I need to try that. So Tell me the idea behind the book. Where did it come from?
1: Well, at Gallup, we had been um, studying well-being. It actually goes back to our founder, George Gallup's work, where he had conducted global studies of, of uh, different parts of the world, not a complete global study, but different parts of the world, studied, You know what made people live long lives and all that. But uh, in the early 2000s, we really started organizing all that research. And we asked a question, are there some common, some commonalities in people who live really good lives and have really good days? And uh, we found there were five elements. Um, We summarized that research in 2010 um, in a book called Wellbeing, the Five Essential Elements. That was directed at individuals. Um, So really mainly trying to help individuals think about what they can do to impact all five of the elements that we found that that people can do something about. Um, and we noticed there's a big gap um, had been a real big gap in organizations in that leaders and managers didn't have good advice for how they could build thriving teams. Um, and we've, we'd also started tracking um, some consistent changes in the workplace that weren't really for the positive positive, increases in worry and stress globally, increases in anger, sadness, and not real good among workers, you know, some, some negative characteristics in organizations that had begun or certainly become kind of systemic. And so we saw a big a big gap in that leaders and managers didn't have kind of the best uh, collated science that they could apply to change their cultures. So this, this book was really written for leaders and managers to help them think about how they can go about changing a culture that um, builds resilient a resilient workforce where they can attract stars and and where they can impact the kinds of outcomes that they really want to impact. I love that. Did you
0: change any of the ideas that you originally had in the book through COVID as, as we were experiencing that?
1: We actually started outlining the book before we knew anything about COVID. And then, yeah, it heavily influenced what we wrote Um, because uh, many of the patterns that we had been tracking pre-COVID became really um magnified um, amplified so we saw pre-covid huge increases in in diversity and workforces uh increases in in the amount of remote work not to the magnitude we experienced at covid but we started seeing patterns there we'd already been studying remote work and what works best what doesn't um increases in how matrixed people were inside organizations where you've got people working with multiple teams and multiple team leaders and um of course, digitization, mobile technology um, has evolved significantly over time, and uh, there have become more gig work. And th- the most desired perk pre-COVID, guess what it was? Most desired work pre-COVID to work perk. from home? Perk. Oh, perk. perk. To, oh, perk yeah. uh, to work from home? Flex time. Yeah. Flex time. Um, only about 5% of people worked from home full-time pre-COVID. And that jumped up to about forty-eight percent at peak during COVID. Seventy percent of people were working from home some of the time, and most of those, a lot of those were, were most of the time. So, seventy percent were experiencing some type of work from home activity uh, during COVID. And uh, that's super high. That's that's yeah. way higher than I thought. Yeah. the The other kind of patterns we saw in the workforce um, during COVID or pardon, pre-COVID, were that the workforce was starting to expect something different from their employer. They, they were looking for a job with a purpose. And we found, as we've studied workplaces in different uh, recessionary times of the past, that the workplaces that did the best during recessions uh, really leveraged uh, their purpose so they could help people see how their work connects to something bigger than just their job. That, that helps people get through um, tough times, I think. Um, people were asking for development at work, not just a satisfying job, where work and life are separate. But um, the number one reason people were changing jobs was uh, career development. But unfortunately, when people changed jobs, they didn't change jobs within the same company. They'd look look outside the company because they weren't seeing the developmental opportunities inside the company. So development's a big one. Um, you know, we notice that a lot in in companies
0: that are startups in Silicon Valley. Those that I talk to, they're they're hoping that. These companies can grow fast enough, but if they're not, they're out. Right? They go to something else where where they feel they can grow faster.
1: Yeah, P- people. Uh, uh, this this younger uh, generation of workers is going to sw- they'll switch work pretty quickly and they'll look for development more quickly. They won't be as they won't uh, just hold out for tenure and you know the the past kind of uh, si- systems we had in organizations where um, people just expect to work work up through the ranks. Um, We also, another really big pattern I thought was before COVID hit, people were expecting their workplace to improve their overall life. They expected more of a blending of work and life than in the past. Um, When I grew up, work and life were kind of separate things. You know, work's over here and the rest of my life's over here. Um, But uh, that, a lot lot of it due to technology and due to the fact that we're carrying around these phones with us every day and all all the time and um, work and life are more naturally blended, but an expectation of an employer that I expect you to improve my life, not just give me a job. That was a big one. Okay. So can you expand on
0: that part when you're saying life, what does that include? Does that include like personal, mental, emotional, extended family type thing, like spouse, siblings, and so forth? What does that look like?
1: Really everything that a that a, that a person is willing to share about the rest of their life, um, uh, we, we found that the most most foundational element of well being, and arguably the most important, um, all things being equal, is your career, because it touches so many other parts of your life. It, it impacts your social life, it impacts your finances, it impacts your health, it impacts your standing in your community. And how you get involved in your community, but the uh, those th- those five I just listed: your career well-being, your social well-being, your financial well-being, your physical well-being, and your community well-being are the five we found that uh, are generalizable across the world in terms of you know people's ability to impact them and and their importance. Were those the five
0: essential elements from that different yeah. book?
1: Can, yeah. can you please repeat those just in case you our better. audience wants those? Yeah, I'll give you the five and just a one sentence definition of each. So. Career well-being is liking what you do every day. Social well-being is having meaningful friendships. Financial well-being is, is managing your money well. Physical well-being is having enough energy to get things done. And uh, community well-being is liking where you live. Now, there's obviously a lot more depth in each of those, but that's the if you're going to pull one thing away from each of those, that'd be the main takeaway. Jim, now I have to read that book, man. Jesus. Now I have to go and order it right now and read it. Okay, so, well, we summarize them in the in the new one too. So it's okay. There's good. A, lot, a lot of a lot. There's some overlap. There was
0: there was one section in the book towards the end. I don't remember what page it was. I just wrote it down in my notes because I thought, wow, this is this is a, a really powerful sentence. I'm going to read it to you, and then you tell me what what the intent of it was. And it says, your organization's best potential to create a net thriving culture starts when you master the elements of well-being most closely linked to work. This is because the work itself is a bridge to trust. And I thought that engulfed a big piece of the
1: the book in this one sentence. Uh, So tell me about that. Getting the order right is really important. Um, A lot of companies have tried wellness programs and uh, tried to uh, well, in a well-intended way, improve well-being. But I think if you get ahead of the basics, it doesn't come across as well-intended and, and people don't know, it doesn't absorb quite as well. So if you start with the basics, what I'd call the nuts and bolts of managing, when people come to work, they want to know what's expected of them. They want to know what their role is. They, they, they want to have what they need to do their work. Um, they, they want to have a chance to do what they do best. So to do that, you've got to get to know something about their strengths. And help them use their strengths every day. When they do something well, they want to be recognized for it. Um, they, uh, they want to feel cared about. They, they want somebody who, who cares about them, who knows them as an individual. And you know, so much of what happens with employee engagement, for instance, and, and well-being uh, is very individual and situational. And managers are in the only position in the organization that can really know those individuals and situations, and that's why they're so important conduits to, get, to getting this right. But when you get those basic elements right, you give people a chance to develop. You connect their work to a bigger purpose. What you're doing is you're starting to meet the expectations that workers have when they join your organization, and they they see that there's there's the trade off they expected, and and you start building trust. When you start building trust inside an organization. People don't second-guess leadership and what they're trying to get done. They're more likely to listen to the strategies of leadership. They're more likely to, um, to co- cooperate with their coworkers. They're more likely to cooperate across teams, which is really important. A lot of times in organizations, teams get siloed and, uh, and the managers you know, kind of develop an us-versus-them mentality instead of we're all in this together and here's why. So, that, so it goes a long ways when you get those basics right. And then people, people start listening to and paying attention to everything you're trying to get done from a well-being perspective, um, whether, whether you have policies, programs, perks, whatever you have available, your benefits, um, all that stuff gets gets absorbed in a very different way if uh, people get their basic needs met. I love
0: that. And I, I liked one piece that you said there. I mean, everything was great, Jim, but there was one thing that stood out because it was at the very beginning you said of that talk, when people come to work, they want to know what they need to do, like what's expected of me. And I think that's where a lot of the newer companies, they, they miss that. And then they wonder why they're failing so bad. Are they hiring bad? Did they hire the wrong people? What are they doing? I think that's a, that's a big key. And then you also mentioned that the manager is, is such a strong key person to keeping the organization together. And I agree because as I've seen these massive companies grow that I help or, or that I'm just part of sometimes the person that started it was that person. I was the person that was making Mm -hmm. you feel good and saying, Hey, how's your family? And then it's gone. And they're like, what, what, what happened? Right. There's a, there's a loss there. How do we go about being able to hire at the right time? Do you know, have you, have you delved into that? To be able to capture that person, to replace you—that that hey, like uh, I'm the chief happiness person, the chief culture person. That person that then disappears when the CEO who created the company is no longer there for that. Mm-hmm. When is it that we hire that person? How do we know? How do we know they're the right person? How do we know they're the right person and how do we know when we're supposed to do that? Because I think that the CEOs try to move so fast because they're the visionaries, right? They're the ones that are created and just say, hey, go here, go there, go there. And it becomes a challenge, right? Because they're no longer there to to say, hey, Jim, how's your family? How are you doing? Oh,
1: because there's a distance as as the organization grows, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a
0: loss there. How, How do we know when to hire that person so that doesn't happen to us?
1: Well, I think it comes down to knowing um, how to go about having a strategy for how you hire managers uh, in the first place. So it's not just that person. It's, it's how the messages of the CEO get, uh, you could use the word cascaded, but get, get messaged throughout the organization and, and accepted throughout the organization. And um, whether uh, people deeper into the organization as it grows feel there's some authenticity and some so leaders can send messages about here's what we value but if the managers aren't endorsing that and saying, here's how this fits into our work, um, and if there's not trust in leadership at a local level, then um, all those values just kind of go on deaf ears. We, we did a, a review of um, over 100 companies and their value statements, and they came out uh, very similar. Um, but um, a pretty small percentage of people said that they really, they really believed in the organization's values, so you can write the best value statements, but unless you have your managers actually helping people connect their work to that and making it real. Um, so I would, to answer your question, Tristan, I, I would say it has to do with your strategy for how you continually hire the best possible man, the managers with the best potential. And uh, there are systems for doing that effectively. Um, we've had a chance at Gallup to study successful managers in a lot of different fields, and there are some common traits that they have that you can select for. But the, the other side of it is, the other half of it is how you upskill those managers over time so that they know how to have the right kinds of conversations with people. So even if you're, you've are you got a company now where you've already grown and hired a bunch of people that are in the managerial role, you better be thinking about how they can be upskilled to move from what the traditional role was of a boss to, to more like a coach. And um, there's some fundamentals to getting that right. That always reminds me of the show.
0: I don't know if you've watched the show before, billions. Have you ever seen billions or have you heard of billions? I have, you know, the, the productivity coach or that, that psychologist, the one that they walk into that, that's what that reminds me of that person that kind of makes you feel good, reminds you that you can do it. Right. So that, that's what it reminded me of right
1: now. Another big part of it though, is just, is how you continually reset priorities. So if you're not in touch with your people, and, and you've got organizational changes. Let's say leadership has changed the direction they want to go. If you don't have the translators for that and the ones who know what people are actually working on and helping them say, here's, here's what we need to change to and here's why. The why is always really important. Um, so they know. So that expectations thing that, that you mentioned, um, only about only about half of people globally clearly know what's expected of them in their work. So there's a there's a big gap right there in a lot of organizations, just getting that right and making sure that the translation happens appropriately. When people know what what they're supposed to do and know why, and actually have some involvement in setting their own goals, you've gone a long ways. Yeah, that's very true, which which kind of then
0: reminds me of the part of your book that talks about building a, a culture and and what was it? net thriving. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was that to me, that's the very first time I've ever heard of it.
1: So can you go over that, please? Yeah. Um, So we're always looking at Gallup. We're always looking for the best questions and we design questions all the time. We're always looking for the ones that capture the most information in the simplest way where anybody in the world could answer the question. And we found a two part question that gives us a really good metric uh, and it came from a researcher named Hadley Cantrell at Princeton. Um, he used to partner with George Gallup, our founder back in the six, this is back in the sixties. So quite a while ago, but we've asked this all over the world, um, literally 160 plus countries and it, and it works. And we asked people to imagine a ladder with steps from zero at the bottom to 10 at the top where zero represents the worst possible life and 10 represents the best possible life. And everybody can respond to where they're at on that ladder. Um, and that's that's part of what we think of as the reflective self or the the remembering self, where you take a step back and say, "Here's where I'm at right now in my life." And then the follow up question, really important, is, "Where do you think you'll be five years from now?" So that's a measure of hope. So you combine those two together: seven plus on the present, eight plus on the future, and you've got what we call thriving, and that's linked to a lot of really uh, positive life outcomes, better health, um, less less daily worry and stress, and Um, Now, that doesn't tell you what to do, but it gives you a good a good overall macro level metric of the people in your organization where they're at. And then you can bring in some diagnostics around the five elements we talked about earlier to to improve on on that. But um, one of the things we learned in this exploration for for this book was that. We've known a lot about employee engagement over the years and how it predicts all kinds of outcomes. And we listed off just a little bit ago, Tristan, some of the elements that go into that, you know, clear expectations, recognition, getting people in the right role and all that. But uh, engagement's not enough anymore. Um, You could be engaged but not thriving in your overall life and you still have a high probability of burnout because the rest of your life isn't aligned with um, what you're trying to get done at work. So you've got kind of some barriers. You could think of burnout as kind of the opposite of flow. We've all experienced flow at one time or another, where we really feel like we're absorbed in our work, you where know, that time goes quickly. Um, Csikszentmihalyi spent his Csikszentmihalyi has spent his whole career staying in that pretty much. But flow and burnout, um, while they appear as opposites, um, they have one thing in common, high challenge. They're both high challenge states. Burnout, you've got things getting in the way of what you're trying to get done. And uh, flow, you don't. You're doing what you do best. And so the rest of our life impacts all that. I like that, man.
0: Because I actually asked Jim Quick this question a couple of weeks ago. Jim Quick wrote the book Limitless. And I said, dude, what do you think of burnout? He goes, look, that, that just means that you're not focusing enough on your passion. And you said the exact same thing. Like, you're letting everything else get in the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very, very
0: good answer. So when it comes down to to this net thriving how how can we do these these things individually if if we're just like a one person shop or a very small business
1: anything we can do to put these things in place so we can thrive the first thing i think is to think about your own well-being you've got to get your own well-being right because that'll that'll make it authentic for the other people around you so um one one thing, and this um, this is probably more so for as organizations grow and they start providing resources for people to improve their well-being, but make sure that what you're trying to do for your employees maps back to those five fundamental elements as kind of an organizing structure. The reason I think that's so important is that people need to know why the different things you're doing for them exist. And if you've got an organizing structure, it helps a lot um, in that kind of process, um, so I would definitely use those five as a way to kind of organize what you're doing in your organization and, and how people are working together to, to do various things. You know, even you can take financial well-being. That seems like it might seem like an odd one that um, you're paying people, but you're supposed to help them manage their finance. We can provide resources for them to do that. You can also people learn a lot through peer uh, groups. If you got any group of employees, no matter what size, they can share ideas. People learn from peers that they're going to learn from peers much more than somebody who they think might make a lot more money than them or just be in a different kind of situation than them. So I think that um facilitating peer groups works a lot. It's it's got I mentioned work on your own well being, but well being um has to start at the CEO's office in terms of not only saying this is important to us, but importantly why it's important. And I would say there are two really important whys that people need to know about what you're doing uh with, with well being and, and one is um we're, in, we're involved in this for our organization because it makes, makes us more resilient, it makes us more creative, it makes us uh, higher, higher performing. That's, that's a very transparent answer. The other is you've got a better, better chance of attracting future stars to your organization because you've got a reputation. Your culture become, begins to get a reputation. What happens inside organizations right now goes outside very quickly. So I think uh, that reputational part of it is important. And as I mentioned earlier, the new workforce is asking for that. So it's kind of a requirement. That's very true. I was just talking to somebody this morning about really being that
0: company that attracts talent. And I think we forget that. We're always trying to chase it. But if you work on these things, because I wrote these down, like career well-being, social well-being, financial, physical, community well-being. If you actively work on these and continually see how you can better your company with these, you're, you're going to start attracting some serious talent, right? And I think it's the opposite of what we've been taught in the past, where it's like, oh, you got to go out there and make like prospecting, like the old sales school, right? Like, mm-hmm. a, like a used car salesman type thing. So I love your approach, man. There, You you also mentioned the highest priority engagement items. And I, I have them here. I wrote them out. They were my expectations, my strengths, my developments, my opinions, my mission of my mission or purpose. Can you go over those and and why they're so important?
1: Sure. Um, My expectations is so important, kind of related to some of the things we were just talking about. Um, People, when they join an organization, they want to know what their role is. And uh, when people come to work and they're confused about what they're supposed to do, it's not good. That's the most foundational one. You, you could have great relationships in the workplace and they become gripe sessions if people are confused about what they're supposed to do. And one of the kind of uh, things under the hood on that one is that's really, really easy, kind of low hanging fruit is involve people in setting their own goals. Um, if you involve them in setting their goals, uh, expectations become clearer. To them, there's more ownership and there's more context. So there, people know their jobs and they, they bring new information from their experiences at work that you may know, not know anything about. And they'll, they'll be in many cases, people will set higher goals than you would ever set for them if you give them that option. So th- that's a really important foundational one. It's not as easy as people might think where you might think, well, we just I just need to delegate better. It's, it's not just that it's it's uh, involvement. It's delegate what? Sometimes they don't even know what to delegate. It's like, what yeah. is it? What is it?
0: It's like itemize right. the duties and tasks and I love your idea, which is look when you when you found somebody and they're coming in and you have a base, right then say, hey, let's let's work on this together now. How do we expand this and expand your role because I, I may not know some of these things that you know. They might be closer to the customers than you are. Dude, I, I love that one a lot. So what about my strengths? What does, that, what does that look like?
1: Well, it starts with identifying an individual's strengths. And it's, it's, uh, it's a different way of approaching management from the traditional, we're going to help shore up your weaknesses and make you well-rounded. Um, you start off by knowing that each, each one of us have innate uh, abilities that are different. Um, if you have kids, anybody who has multiple kids knows that they they come out a little different, and so they have different strengths. One of them might be more, more analytical. One of them might be more of a showboat. Um, you, you just you get different abilities naturally. It's part of the grand design, I think, is that you get, when you have a any kind of a small tribe of people, they've got they've got. And, and but we have to first understand what those are. So we've got a method we call it's called Clifton Strengths, named after a founder, uh, one of our founders in this uh, area of science don clifton and it's been uh, completed by over 25 million people globally Um, and it helps people identify through a methodology what their top uh, innate tendencies are so that they can leverage those tendencies and and share them with others and it creates a language that just creates more efficient conversations and helps managers get people in a position where they can leverage those more often it doesn't mean that people don't work on weaknesses they still uh, everybody needs to work on competencies, but you can do it in a way that's unique to you. So that, that first item I mentioned, expectations, define the outcome that you want people to work toward. Don't expect them all to get through the same way and utilize their strengths to help them get get to those outcomes in a way that's unique to them. That kind of that kind of fuels that ownership component that we talked about earlier. Which I love, by the way. And, and just, you
0: brought up something right there and I wanted just to Remind the audience that the book now discover your strengths, right?
1: That's is that what you're talking about from Gallup? That was the first version of it. We now have uh, uh, have a have a book uh, called Strengths Finder 2.0. It's kind of a a really short book and it's it's uh, um, got all the all the best content in it. But either, either of those are out there. All right. So my development, so you're picking your strengths, right? You've identified what those are. Tell me about development now. So the important thing about development is that we shouldn't expect everybody to develop in the same way. And knowing those first two, you know, what, what an individual's expectations are, the outcomes you're, you're working toward, um, their strengths gives you a real advantage in developing them because then you can work through their development, uh, through their strengths to, to areas that, that they can develop in their work. And uh, unfortunately, most people don't feel like they're developing at work. And I think it's because we expect people to develop in the same way. Um, And it it starts with managers needing to feel that they're developing. So we, we, that boss to coach journey that I was referring to earlier is a way to upskill managers so that they themselves are developing so that they, they can learn how to have the right kinds of conversations I think it's really hard for people to develop effectively if managers don't know what they're doing and if managers don't have ongoing conversations with them. Um, We'd argue from our data, every manager at minimum should have at least one meaningful conversation per week with everybody they manage. If you just write that down as a minimum, one meaningful conversation a week. And the word meaningful is really important. And underneath that is, I've got to know a lot about what you're doing, your work, your role. I've got, and I need to know your strengths, and I probably need to know something about what's going on in your life so that we can adjust to whatever situation you're in. Um, but if I know those things, then I can have some really meaningful discussions with you about your development. Uh, I can I can notice times when you're excelling and give you feedback on that. I've built up some trust with you so that if if there is something you need to improve on, we can have a candid conversation about it, and it's fine, and you appreciate that um, as opposed to feeling like you're always being criticized by your manager um, tristan we we asked uh um, we asked people in one of our studies to relive the previous their previous work day and we asked them uh well first, we measured how engaged they were in their work and knew something about how well they were developing, but we also asked them. Uh, how much of their time they, they, were, they had spent um, doing what they do best and then also how much time they spent um, doing what they don't do best uh, using their weaknesses and the engaged workers uh, reported using doing what they do best four times uh, the rate so four to one ratio in comparison to doing what they don't do well um, the, the actively disengaged workers so these are the ones that are really negative about their organization one to one so if we're going after balance, that's not the right answer. Um, to, to develop people appropriately, we've got to be really thinking about what they do best and, and getting them – doesn't mean you're going to have to – everybody has to do things they don't love to do in their work, but um, you need an abundance of people doing what they do best. And so the more that we can develop people so that they can get there over time, and part of that is as organizations grow. I know you mentioned a lot of entrepreneurs, small businesses um, – as your organizations grow over time, you're going to find that people can, can continually do more of what they do best and, and hand off things they don't do best that other people love to do that they don't love to do. And so the more you can evolve people that way as your organization grows so that, so that, that, that actually happened in, in, in my career where uh, as I continued to progress, I was able to, to uh, really learn more about what, comes easy to me, what comes natural, what challenges me, what gets me interested. And uh, some of the things that seem like a burden to me, other people love to do. So I think that's the way it ought to work as, as organizations grow. Dude, that makes a lot of sense. When you said the one to one
0: for those people that aren't happy at the organization, that the, the very first thing I thought of was burnout. Yeah. Right. That That makes so much sense. That's what burnout looks like. Dude, very good. Four, four to one. That I, I prefer that. That is so much better. It's not a balancing act. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> that's so true. All right. So, what about my opinions? Tell me about that because that's right after my development.
1: Yeah, listening to people is so important, and it's often overlooked in, in management, where we again think that that our job is to delegate all the time, and our and that that's our main responsibility, but. Um, The best managers are really good listeners uh, and they sit down with people and get their perspective. It doesn't mean that their perspective is always going to be used every time, but at least they'll know why because you have a chance to explain that. Um, It also relates to a sense of uh, control, which has health outcomes. People need to come to work and feel like they have some autonomy and have some influence and some, con- some self-control and, and, opinions counting goes a long ways in that department. Um, we listed off a number of studies in, in that book, um, that we cite some of the white hall studies that looked at some of the outcomes of where people didn't feel like they had autonomy and it can have some really devastating health outcomes on people. So these, these, these elements of well being are blended. Um, they're, they're interdependent, I would say. And, uh, that's, that's a really important one. It's, it's one that, um, Uh, it's one of the uh, most difficult ones for people to get right, but uh, getting it right doesn't require a whole lot, (laughs) if that makes any sense at all. Um, People naturally get it wrong because they think they should delegate, but you can get it right just by sitting down with people and getting their perspective. That's not very hard. You know, dude, I thought that out of all of
0: them, I mean, they're all great and important. All right. But right now I think that one just seemed to be so pertinent with, with the atmosphere that we live in, everybody's giving their opinions and everybody kind of wants to force their opinion on, on you. And if you don't agree, well, you know, see you later. Right. There's a, Mm -hmm. there's a problem. And I love that you said this where you just, just shut up and listen. Right. (laughs) Because I think that's, that's the key to this. As you want to grow your company and you sit down and you talk to these individuals that are working with you, you can better help them if you understand them and you get
1: their opinions and they're, they're valued, right? One of, the, one of the things, Tristan, that gets this toxic is disrespect. And it's hard to know what that means unless we really listen to people. Um, and on the, the high end of it, respect. It's, it'd be hard to respect somebody really if, if, you, if they don't feel like you're listening to them at all. Um, so that's kind of underneath that too. I love that, man. You mentioned that you did a
0: study on it. Uh, when you were seeking employment input, I wrote this down. Um, empower your employees; that they'll live longer. You, you mentioned the White Whitehall studies, mm-hmm. and I loved reading that study. Do you, by any chance, remember that study well so you could tell tell us about it or or no?
1: Yeah. Well, they uh, so um, Michael Marmot was one of the co-authors of the study, and they um, they studied civil workers in Europe. And they tracked them longitudinally and they not only tracked their health outcomes like new instances of coronary heart disease and other outcomes, but they, they also measured their perceptions of their work. It's called justice at work, which is a sort of a measure of it's very similar to what we refer to as employee engagement, but um, there's a big element of self-control um, that they studied in autonomy. And the people that had more of that just lived longer and had much uh, longitudinally had had much lower rates of, of negative health outcomes. And it makes a lot of sense if you if you kind of were able to just write down how you felt every day at work uh, and kept track of that over time. I think that you would you would notice that you're feeling something inside physiologically when when you don't feel like you have self-control at work and when you when you don't feel autonomy and opinions counting goes a long ways in helping people feel like they have um, some self-control when they come to work. We, we actually did another study um, that kind of helps to explain why those findings exist, where we, tr- we track people in the moment. And we asked them, before we conducted this study, we measured their opinions counting and their engagement. And uh, we found that in the moment, uh, people that said they felt stress actually had uh, more of the Um, physiologically had more, more of the stress hormone cortisol, um, which we measured through saliva samples. So we actually asked people questions in the moment, captured their saliva and associated those things together. But people that were more engaged um, had, had less of the stress hormone cortisol as they're anticipating work in the morning. So if you think about those days accumulating like that, the other interesting thing to me is the people that had high interest in the moment had lower levels of cortisol. So you need moments with high interest and it doesn't mean you have the absence of stress completely because sometimes stress can help us get things done, but you don't want too much stress. And right now, um, our tracking of of the global data, particularly here in the U S and Canada, uh, stress is, uh, is much too high, even though engagement is higher here, stress is too. So we love our jobs, but we're stressing ourselves out because we don't have all these other elements aligned.
0: Dude, the one-to-one thing. I'm not gonna forget that. The one to one that's insane. And and you know, you mentioned something really in between there, and it reminded me of you guys, you guys should start for this book, you should start like a, a work journal. And it, it should have like these items right here: like my expectations, strengths, development, opinions, and then the last one, the purpose. Like I I would love to just jump in if I'm part of an organization, be like, okay, well, how how am I feeling today? My expectations met or I think that's, that's awesome. All right. So tell me
1: about my mission or purpose. Tell me about that. This is one that was particularly important as we tracked. We did a big study where we looked at past recessions and uh, about studied about 62,000 business units and uh, compared them to, to non-recessionary times. And, feeling connected to your mission or purpose or, uh, of the organization, uh, made people more resilient, made businesses better during tough times. Um, especially, but all the time, but particularly during, during tough times, I think people need to see how their work connects to something big as they're going through struggles or else it's easy to just think about your work as tasks and it's more easy to get stressed out. And, um, that one I I like to think of as, um, they're all kind of elements of human nature. Um, we've, if you go back, as far back as you want to go and whatever your theory is of how long humans have been around, we started off in small groups. Um, and we had to have some, something in common to be together. And, uh, you know, whether we're chasing something or whether, um, there, there's something else bigger going on, but we've got, uh, something inside us that wants to be a part of something bigger. And almost everybody has something, whether it's a sports team or whether it's church or, or, um, but why can't it be at work? Why can't your workplace be a big per- one of your big purposes in life that you're trying to, um, you're trying to get done to, to make uh, the people around you better in one way or another? So I think it starts with an organization having a really clear uh, mission or purpose um, that you can remember off the top of your head. Gallup's is to provide analytics and advice that improve the world, one person in one organization at a time. Um, I can attach all my work to that. And uh, and connect to I think every organization can have a, a mission or purpose like that. And when it, the key to good management then is helping people see how their work does that no matter what their job is, how does your work contribute to that bigger picture?
0: Yeah, that's that's key right there, because there that's key right there, because there was one section in the book that I'm just going to read it out. It said I wrote this down. Every company has a mission statement, but it's the manager." who makes work meaningful, which brings everything together with what you said, right? We've got it. We've got to have this meaningful conversation with the people that we manage at least once a week. Right. I wrote that down. I'm like, damn, that's, that's important. So that was really good. I love how you brought it all together. You know what it felt like after I read the book, it felt like it was a manual. Cause I kept on going back to it. I was like, Whoa, this is, what was that over here? You put so much into this one, and it felt like the research just came all together. How do
1: you feel about about the book now that it's out there? We've gotten just excellent feedback on it, um, and we we put a lot of effort. In, you know, co- the the COVID year still going on in a lot of parts of the world, but um, still going on here. But uh, we're we're starting to get out of it. But that that whole twenty twenty as I look back on it, it felt like a blur, but we put, we put so much um, research into this book, but our our goal was to summarize it in a way that was accessible to any manager or leader um, and, and pull away some action points from what's been done. So we did, we did a lot of work looking not only at our Gallup databases, but also looking at the academic literature that's been published on each of these topics that we're talking about uh, to, to pull out, Here's what you can reliably do and that you can rely on to actually have a real, a real impact according to the science that we've seen. So um, we put a lot of effort into it. We, we wrote a book uh, just a couple of years ago called It's the Manager that was even more of a manual. So that's more of, a, man, more of a, a manual for managers and moving on that boss to coach journey. This one kind of builds on top of that saying we got to take it a step further um, in that journey, we can we've got some tidbits to help organizational leaders and managers, based on the science, um, take it to the next level and impact people's overall lives. So that was our goal. That happened with this one because there was something you said at the very beginning that I wrote down.
0: You said work and life is more connected to work than ever before, and man, that's that is so true. Besides these devices, which you brought up being one of the reasons for mm-hmm. that. Why do you think? Why do you think we're there? And I think it's only just going to become even more and more true in the next few years.
1: Well, we were heading that direction because it was an expectation of the newer workforce um, pre-COVID, and then COVID just probably made it, made it a permanent, um, a permanent thing because many people in this what we often call forced experiment uh, learned that it can it can work that way. And uh, it can work that way effectively. You've got about 30% of people that really want to be back permanently on location. And all the rest either want uh, some kind of a hybrid model where um, you're coming and going in ways that are most comfortable for you. That's the biggest chunk. And then there's another about 20% that that would prefer to be full-time work from home, which is four times what it was pre-COVID. But I think people learned a lot on both sides. There's a group of people that learned I've got to be in the office to get my work done. And there's a group, there's a big group of people that learned that the the flex time thing they're asking for before really does it can and does work if you do it right. But what that does Tristan, I think is it puts even more pressure on how we manage people and how we coach them. Um, It's hard to boss people when they're in that kind of environment because uh, the people with the boss mentality need to see what people are. You know, they need to have people visible to them all the time, so they know they're actually working. But if you if you uh, get people in the right jobs and you uh, you know that people really do want to make a difference in their work, um, if you're hiring the right people and have a system in place for that, um, the hybrid kind of model can be very effective because it 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 meets one of the basic. Uh, needs we talked about earlier of autonomy. Most of what we see connects to engagement and well-being has a lot to do with autonomy and people, you know, being able to do things their own way. Even improving well-being, we shouldn't expect people to be athletes to, to have high physical well-being. We shouldn't expect them necessarily, they ca- they could be, but we shouldn't expect everybody to um, be a multimillionaire. They could be, but we shouldn't expect everybody to, to be that if they want to have high financial well-being. And we shouldn't expect everybody to have 10 more new friends to have high social well-being. Maybe they just need to get the most out of the – hang out with the high, highest energy people that they know that bring them the most, the most energy. But uh, they need to do it their own ways. is the point I'm trying to make. And they, if they know their strengths, they can uh, impact all those well-being elements in a way that's very unique to them. And they don't have to do anything miraculous to, to get there. They can do it in a way that's simple and that is effective for them. Nice. So you're telling me it all starts with your strengths
0: first. I can really see nice. I can see the progression of this. So now I need to read Strengths 2.0, right? <laughs> the manager book. And then and then your book
1: right here man I, I I love this and we've tried to summarize it all on this one too so it doesn't like you have to but it yeah'd be great if you did <laughs> dude I, I love the progression by the way that was that was awesome
0: that was awesome all right so now now that you've written the book you look back at it and you say okay this is this is amazing which it is by the way everybody go pick it up it's an amazing you. it's an amazing book when you look back you're like okay I wish I would have added this part to it is there anything like that that you looked at that you wish you would have added?
1: mmm well the um, I would say this that uh, during 2020 um, I've never seen data get old so fast so <laughs> um, usually the, the things we find you know don't change that that much they kind of gradually shift over time we saw some big shifts in the data and fortunately by the time we published this we'd captured you know a lot of the, this, those Massive changes that were occurring, but I think we've got another wave of change coming up. So I think what I would want to add is what's probably coming, which is how workforces are evolving as they as they come back and and the decisions that leaders are making and the the effect of some of those decisions. Um, I think people are going to learn a lot from the decisions they make on 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 what they require people to do and uh, what the, what effects those those decisions have on their workforce. There's some leaders that are that might go too fast you've got to be in the office full time. Um, there are other ones that uh, might not put the right skills in place for their managers to manage effectively in a hybrid environment. So I think, I think leaders need to be real thoughtful about how they uh, educate managers and kind of take them on that journey. So they continually learn um, uh, through their strengths, but also learn how to have the right kinds of conversations with people so that a hybrid model can work going forward. Man, um, that's, I see that. And I see one thing that
0: was really apparent reading through the whole book was that leaders really now in, in our, our day and age, they need to have high emotional intelligence, number one, right? And mm-hmm. they also need to be very involved with the people that they're leading. And and that was just super clear. I was like, whoa, that's, damn, I need to go back because I need to work on some of that, Jim.
1: <laughs> so well well for for senior executives, you know the first thing is to is to effectively manage the people that dire- directly report to you so if you if you get that right, then you're going to start what we sometimes call a cascade in the organization but um, trust happens through that as opposed to trying to you know impact every single person as your organization grows but I would prioritize it that way so ex- executives need to be coaches too. Yeah, and I think they forget that, right? Because we're
0: we're so used to if you're the one that started the company and not coming from an executive job, but more of an entrepreneur, right? You're the one that started it, funded it. You were the social media marketing everything, right? And you forget that you have to function as more of a manager once you reach that role and saying, "Hey, let me help you and coach you while you do everything else." It's a great point, Jim. I love that, man. So look, everyone, please do yourself a favor. If you're, if you're looking to take your business to the next level, this was an amazing book. I was really surprised in a, in a really good way. Well, being at work, how to build resilient and thriving teams, pick it up. If you're not going to read it, get the audible and follow Jim Harder on social media. Jim, anything you want to add here in closing, my friend?
1: I really appreciate you having me on Tristan. Um, and, uh, I'm, we're open to anybody wants to get a hold of us or learn more about Gallup. Just go to gallup.com. Um, we we share all of our latest research out there. Research not not just the reports, but article really short articles that people can pick up and read quickly. And uh, I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. If anybody wants to contact me there, I'll be reaching out and to you more, Jim. Great, thanks, Tristan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.